Due to COVID-19, this episode was recorded over Zoom. We apologize for the lower sound quality. Hello and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we discussed the handbook on safer field research in the social sciences with two of its authors, Isabel Schirenbeck from the University of Gothenburg and Janice Grimm from Freie Universität Berlin. We discussed the need for available guidance on how to prepare and conduct safe research within the social sciences. We also discussed the new challenges to safe research that COVID-19 has brought. The handbook was co-authored with Kevin Coeller, Ellen Last and Elias Saliba. You can find more information about the authors and the handbook in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Last. We hope you enjoy the episode. So thank you, Janis and Isabel, for joining today to talk about the Safer Field Research in the Social Sciences book that's a guide to human and digital security in hostile environments. We wrote this book together along with Leah Saliba and Kevin Kohler about the same time that COVID took off. So I thought today what we could do is have a discussion both about the lessons of the book and its intention, but also thinking through how does it help us address and respond to the challenges COVID has presented, as well as the possibilities moving forward. So maybe we can start just by thinking about the goal of the book and why we wrote it. Of course, there's a lot of books out there that look at especially research ethics, right? So questions about how we should engage in field work and field research. And this is what might one, one might initially think is kind of another book along those lines. But um, Giannis, maybe you can help by situating it and giving us a sense of how it might differ from general books on ethics. Yeah, sure. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Uh, for raising that question, I think uh, it's it's an important distinction because when you look at our resources on fieldwork safety, basically what you find is a lot of guidance on research ethics, and these include, of course, issues of security and safety, but mostly the safety concerns, the safety of the interlocutors or of the interviewees, and then books engage with the ethical process on how to handle consent and how to deal with the data collected from those interlocutors and so on. And these frameworks that have been developed in different countries differ vastly, as do the institutions that deal with them. So, for instance, in Germany, where Ilias, Kevin and me, we don't even have ethical review boards at most institutions that deal with the questions of data storage and publication, how to analyze, etc. and so on. Whereas in the US, you have those, of course. I think what we tried in the book, quite successful, I believe, is that we provided the toolbox that is adaptable to different ethical frameworks, uh, no matter how they look like. So I'd like to think of it basically as a toolkit. So once you have your ethical framework set up with your supervisors to institutions and so on, then you can turn to the book and use the guidance there and the parameters set out in the different chapters on how to implement these. So basically, if your ethical framework commands you to take utmost precaution in the protection of the interlocutors, then the book will help you in doing that. Whereas when your ethical framework commands you to place more um, focus on data storage and data anonymization, then the book will also help you on how to do that. But we don't, I think um, what we don't do in the book is basically tell you how that ethical framework should look like. There's just different uh, opinions on that in established literature that we don't really refer to. Them. Yeah, and I also, I think one important thing, Janice mentioned that ethics mostly is concerned with the safety for um, 
research subjects. And I think that's something we really elaborate quite extensively on in the book. And that goes both for fieldwork when it's carried out in the global south and also in more of the global north with marginalized or vulnerable groups. And I think the problem here is that lots of times since the ethics boards mostly is concerned with the research subjects and maybe also the researcher, there is very little guidance on how to protect and make sure that the local collaborators, people we're collaborating with in the global north, to really recognize their very specific position in research problems. It's not only the local partners from universities, but also what we sometimes refer to as fixers or transcribers. I think there is, since we are increasingly working in those large research projects, it's rare, more and more rare that it's the single researchers doing fieldwork alone, but we are working really more connecting with local partners. It's one of the issues that we really try to raise and elaborate in the book. Another thought I had, it's also the review boards are set to review ethics and not safety. And from people who was working with us in the book, and also from my own experiences, because we start to increasingly use also review board in Sweden now, it's very clear that they are, in lots of cases, not the right place to assess safety or security concerns. Because as we all know, you know, if you follow the recommendation for a foreign minister, you could go to Iraq and, and carry out fieldwork. Or there would be, you shouldn't go to Iraq, but we all know that there are different parts of Iraq that are perfectly fine and much more secure than other parts. But also knowing your field and knowing languages, the context, having local partners might suggest that you can go to any part of, for instance, Iraq. So we also think that it's important that we as researchers really owns this process and that we are really part of discussing those things and that the review boards maybe is not the right place to do it. You mentioned this, the review board several times, and I think another major distinction between what we're doing and that process is that that process tends to check the box, right? So you put in your IRB proposal, it gets approved, and the idea is, okay, you're set to go. And one of the major takeaways from the book is that it should be a dynamic process, right? That you should be constantly updating, taking into account new information, rethinking what's sort of possible and not possible and revising essentially your kind of your risk assessments, right? It's not a tick the box, move on and do the project no matter what, but really a kind of a constant thing in, in the presence of one's mind in terms of how to think through the various parts of projects and changes over time as well as across space and a much more kind of hands-on how-to approach to it, I think, than the review boards often give us. Of course, we wrote this before the pandemic, before COVID took off, and there's some ways in which arguably lessons for how we can address the pandemic, how we should do research during COVID that, again, you mentioned it moves beyond sort of global south and always did, but now it feels like the pandemic is everywhere, right? So, Isabel, maybe just sort of provide some reflections in terms of how this helps us to think through the COVID crisis. Yes, I, I think you point to the fact that it's really, we have had a, a huge change that no review board or, and not us ourselves either could think about before it happened, right? I think we're all taken by this new situation. I think it also leads into what we are talking about in the book to all the time, really be aware of the conditions and settings and the reality might shift and to be very 
aware of that before, during, and after fieldwork. And that's also why we argue throughout the book that you really need to do a risk assessment that needs to constantly be redone or rethought or reflected upon. So I think from that perspective, the book is useful, but also maybe then from the perspective of how swiftly and fast states and regimes may change laws and regulations that we take for granted. And this goes for more authoritarian regimes in the global south, but it also goes for states and governments in the global north. And I think that's also something we reflect on in the book, and that can be useful now when we have the pandemic. But I think if we were writing this book during COVID, I think obviously we would have spent much more time on that, I think, because we also write in the book that the book is also for people, for instance, who work with vulnerable groups in Europe, for instance. And then we know from what's happened now how the security situation for people working with those groups really have changed or have been challenged in different ways. And then a final reflection is the chapter we have on, um, in the book we also then discuss the fact that fieldwork in certain settings, always maybe I would like to say, but in most cases, but also specifically in hostile environments, it's, it's really affecting us emotionally as researchers, as transcribers who are sitting and transcribing transcribing material from interviews that is hard to read or cope with and so on. And I think one of the reflections that we make in the book is that when people are coming home from fieldwork, it's really important that there is colleagues and supervisors who uh, both they can share their experiences with, but also colleagues and supervisors who is a bit aware of and are sort of like looking for the small signs, maybe, you know, in the coffee room when the person is constantly, for instance, going back talking about specific things or disappearing and not coming into office. And I think that part of the book could also be useful because part of that book is also about the distress connecting to like not being able to reconnect with the field. And as we know now, I mean, I have myself two PhD students, for instance, who have planned their whole PhD project and were, I mean, one was in the middle of conducting his research in Tunisia when the pandemic started and the other one was on her way. So obviously it's really stressful for them to be in this position of now having to think through, think new and really reshape the project. And I think there are some good parts in the book that can be useful for that kind of rethinking as well. And maybe I can add another thought to that. Of course, we didn't really have in mind the pandemic when we wrote that book. But in the end, I also believe that the book is somewhat of an answer to a trend that was there before COVID and that has been exacerbated by COVID even more, which is a securitization of fieldwork and also a restriction of fieldwork by governments and non-state agents in different parts of the world. And then ensuing, of course, the increasing attention of research institutions across the globe on liability issues, on issues of security. So, of course, uh, we all have in mind the case of Giulio Regeni, but there were certain other cases as well, after which there was a lot of hesitation by supervisors, understandably, and academic institutions to support projects involving fieldwork in countries that were deemed as dangerous and so on. And this securitization that started before COVID and that led to an increasing focus on normal requirements, research visas, insurance policies, written consent forms, etc., etc. I think this trend was only strengthened by COVID, both because, of course, the pandemic has been used, as research is showing, by authoritarian states across the globe to tighten restrictions on critical thinking and writing, but also because of simply the health risk and the liability issues that come with sending students to countries where the pandemic is not under control. So in a way, that book didn't have the pandemic in mind, but still the advice that we provide in the book is still helpful to assess some of these risks and to navigate that field. I think ultimately the choice, of course, 
to engage in fieldwork despite the pandemic and to travel to countries and so on. This is one that, that researchers have to take themselves together with their supervisors, advisors, and institutions and so on. But I think that the book will still, even under conditions of COVID, help readers to make a more informed choice in that sense. But if we would have known about the pandemic, we would have probably placed a bit more focus on the issues of personal health and safety that are not really the focus of the book. But then again, I think there's also an ample literature on this when it comes to, for instance, NGO workers going to sub-Saharan Africa's and Ebola-affected regions and so on. There has been manuals on how to behave in such conditions, which might also be useful now, I think. And also, I'm not sure, actually, we're bombarded every day with health instructions on how to behave under conditions of COVID. And I doubt that they vary very much, whether you're in Berlin or whether you're in Beirut. So uh, maybe there's already quite some knowledge on this. No, and we do. I mean, we have some discussion about health and safety and thinking through it in, ter in terms of, and even in terms of thinking through timeouts and first aid kits that are needed, et cetera. But it really strikes me, too, is that we've expanded the notion of what a hostile environment is. So I think that when we really started it, the impetus of the book was thinking about the Giuliani case and how we understood authoritarian regimes and really repressive regimes. And then we started to realize that we're talking about research that's done inner city, Boston, or that hostile environment could expand beyond authoritarian regimes. And I think now we can even recognize that it expands even more when we realize that the risks are not just about regime types, but they're also about things like health risks and pandemics, et cetera. So in some ways, it's like that continues to expand. Yeah, and I think that's actually why the book still is helpful also for the pandemic, because I also think since we wrote the books also in collaboration with lots of other people who are coming from lots of different fields, I think that also actually helped us so that even if we don't specifically talk about a pandemic, when they brought in their examples and when they elaborated on what they had been going through in their own careers in work as human rights activists or journalists or whatever, you know, so one of the things we're seeing is this shift in, and a lot of the research when people can't go to the field, especially when the field is another country, and we're starting to see people trying to do focus groups over Zoom or interviews over Skype and use a lot more of technology to help keep research moving, which I think also helps keep many of us a bit more sane if, if that's if the kind of the perspective we come from. But I'm wondering, Giannis, especially since you really led on the digital security chapters, if you can give us some thinking around how we should think about the kinds of issues that arise when we use these techniques. Yeah, I think it's a very crucial point because on the one hand, I think this yeah, growing trend of digital fieldwork, if you will, on the one hand, I think it puts into question our conceptions of what the field is and where the field starts and where its boundaries are. On the other hand, of course, it showcases our increasing dependence on digital technologies to collect our data, to store the data, to process the data, and then to publish it later on, and also to discuss it with colleagues and so on. And so far, I think most debates at departments, they have not really touched upon the risks of this increasing reliance on technology, or at least have not touched on this deeply, basically. Uh, so, so I think at many departments, you have had debates on whether, you know, is Zoom safe or not? Should I still use WhatsApp or should I switch to Signal? But this is basically the level at which it stays. 
And the only area where there's more systematic thinking about data safety is in the framework of debates on data access and research transparency and how to store big data sets online and make them accessible to the public. This is not the whole story. I think even before Corona, we have been reliant on a lot of digital infrastructure that came with new risks for researchers that are hardly covered at all. Courses on field work, on in methodological uh, curricula at universities that are changing quite quickly. And I think these risks relate to all phases of field research from planning to analysis to the storing and to the publishing process. And just to give you an example, I mean, even before Corona, you've had big research institutions like SWP being hacked by foreign agencies. You have had uh, researchers whose phones were tapped and so on. And these events have been proliferating under Corona. So the fact that we all rely on certain technologies, of course, makes these technologies the, the hot target for certain groups. And many of the tools that we use, we know that they have been breached and others that we don't know of that have been breached yet. We know that they're really unsafe. To give you just one example, one of the tools that is currently on Vogue do clubhouse thing. I think in the region that, that I work on, which is the Middle East, it's becoming very, very popular quite quickly, despite the fact that all you say on that tool is being recorded and it's being stored and you don't know which service it's being stored. And this can be used as a research for further repression, etc. So what we did in the book with the help of some great researchers from both activist collectives and technology training institutions is that we, I think we provided kind of a roadmap of how to think systematically through the process of data collection from the initial collection to the processing to the publishing and think of different risk factors and how this data might be sifted off your hard drive, so to speak, by some nefarious actors and so. And then we provided some tools, some of which surely have to be updated now, but we provided some tools on how to protect against these threats. And I think it's a really vital dimension of the process of thinking about research safety that has become even more important now under Corona as the considerations of where, whether how I should move, what I should dress uh, in a certain country are not that topical anymore, at least not for researchers in the global north for whom the field is in the global south usually. But of course, for researchers in the global south, it's still the field starts at their, at their doorstep, basically. But also for them, they use the same technologies as we do. And, and these technologies just provide really windows that are often easy targets for authoritarian regimes, but also for non-state groups. So I think in this regard, the book is really, it's really a primer, um, but, but it doesn't really provide, of course, an ultimate answer. I think it, it's something that a conversation that should be expanded on also in light of new risks that have come up since Corona. I also think one important aspect there is also that if we look at research institutions and centers, the persons leading most research team, research projects and so on are seniors. Seniors are way behind juniors in this also to a certain extent. So I also think it's important here to recognize that because it is, it is time consuming. It takes time. You're used to work in a specific way. You're used to use the tools you're doing when you're contacting people, when you're collecting your data, when you're storing your data. And it takes quite a lot to both understand what's going on because it's so rapidly changing all the time as well and also to have time to also implement them and actually change the patterns you are used to. So I think in that respect, I also think it's useful to think about this as something that where we really need to also maybe work juniors and seniors together to uh, make sure that we start to take this seriously. Final point is also, you're right, Janice, most of the partners in, for instance, the Global South are also using those technologies and so on. But they're also, in my experiences, I have a few partners who are very much more aware of this because they have had to rethink those things for the sake of their own security for quite a long time. 
So I also think we have something to learn to really bring in and communicate much more with people who are living and working in authoritarian regimes. Yeah, I think you're totally right there. The need to make your communication safer has made some people in other countries more aware of the risks than in countries where maybe surveillance is not the biggest issue at the moment. I think when it comes to digital security, what we've also tried in the book is to show that there's on the one hand, of course, always a continuum between convenience and maximum security. And usually we have to make a choice on where we want to situate ourselves on that continuum, which technology we want to use, which software, usually the safest one is not always the easiest one to handle. But on the the other hand, the good part of the story is that today you don't need to be really a tech expert anymore. You don't need to be able to code your program yourself and to set up everything with coding language that is not easily accessible to anyone. But there is already tools out there. There is foundations out there. There is activist collectives out there that have provided excellent guidelines and excellent technologies. They haven't been used much by, by social scientists so far, often because they're just on some website that we don't know about there and they're actually quite easy to use. And I think there is hardly an era or a field when it comes to researcher safety where you can, with very little added effort, you can have such a great benefit of added security. Yeah, and I also think that sometimes you actually also might want to go back to the old ways. There is also sometimes no need to use those fancy technologies. Sometimes it might be better to take field notes in the old-fashioned way, even though that also, of course, comes with its own risks. Thank you. I think the final issue I'd like us to address is to think forward. So one of the things that we've been seeing with coronavirus has been the extent to which universities now particularly are actively engaging in thinking through, is it safe to hold classes in person or offline or how do we manage? And suddenly there's a lot more awareness of safety issues, I think, at the university sort of institutional level than there maybe has been before. I'm wondering if that's a chance for us to think about how universities can engage constructively. What would be your recommendations or your wishes? My wish would be uh, institutions really recognize the trend now, the, the securitization of research, what's going on, and support research and research teams when they are approaching fieldwork in, for instance, an authoritarian regime, but they don't take it over, that it's not becoming just another administration unit but there is this ownership still lies with the researcher and the research team that's something that we think it's really important and but if that's the case then of course and also it could be lots of things done in the system both on a central level but also on a local institutional level to support persons so we suggest a few things i mean I, there is if there could be more institutionalized structures and procedures, for instance, on how can you, in a department, in, make a risk assessment with the support of, for instance, the research leader, professor or senior who has just been in the field, in a, in a similar field, the, maybe the IT person who is working on that on a central level, that there could be set up structures, support structures to do those risk assessments before you go into the uh, start your field work, but also then that there is some contact persons, a structure for how to contact people, both in the department and centrally, maybe if something happens to you, if you need assistance while you're doing field work. And then afterwards, also, if you publish and disseminate your results, for instance, in a seminar, you notice that there are people that are there who you think is from the regime, for instance, which happens frequently. Or if you notice that someone is approaching you via email or in other ways, you know, contacting you, that you, I mean, that there are 
people in the central level and in the institutions who actually support you and who you can elaborate and share this with. Instead of having it all go through a very bureaucratic process where there is someone in the top who is saying yes or no to you and that's it. Because the risk with that, we're also discussing in the book, is that there is a risk if we see this tendency that we think we see in some countries where more and more people, researchers are restricted to go to certain areas. There is a risk with that. First of all, it will be really fatal for knowledge production if researchers can't carry out their work. In, for instance, authoritarian regimes or with certain groups in certain areas, you know, then we will lose knowledge on what's going on. But also it's a risk that people who invested their whole careers in certain areas, locations in the world, they will go there anyhow. They will find ways to do their research anyhow without those supporting structures. So that's a few aspects. The final one I would like to bring up is also to, I mean, we have research seminars on methods. We have seminars on ethics. Why not have seminars on safety and security issues? both digital ones that we spoke about before, but also discussing when people are returning from having done field work, bring together a group of people and share experiences as a knowledge and so on, and let that be like a process that is always there in the different departments. That's also something we reflect upon in the book. There's different ways how institutions could carry that conversation forward. In one way, that you mentioned, uh, Isabel, is of course to think about body systems of ombudsperson at universities, to think about methodological curricula and so on. However, I also think that we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We shouldn't get rid of how it's been done before. So, of course, just a, a very formalist handbook cannot replace the expert advice of people that know a certain country or a certain topic and so on. However, at the same time, this advice is also often not enough because this advice often comes in the shape of do it that way because I've always been doing that way and it's always been fun. That's like saying, well, I'm driving drunk all the time. I've never had an accident. It's probably still not a good idea. So I think the way forward should be somewhere in between this Indiana Jones type researcher where you're just on your own, you go into the field, you take the risk, you assess it yourself, maybe with some chosen few peers. And the calculating brain on a stick type, as Max Gallian has called it the other day, where you just have your boxes and your matrices and you fill them in and in the end you think you're safer. I think one thing really that we should avoid is making researcher safety an issue just as research ethics that is being dealt with just to very formalized box ticking procedures. Because in the end, those people that want to do field research, they have an inherent incentive into ticking those boxes and into maybe understating the risks even that they will be taking. So what I would envision is actually more of an offer on the side of institutions towards uh, their staff, both junior and senior, actually, to engage with these issues, be that in the shape of working groups, in the shape of certain body systems, in the shape of a certain peer review procedures for fieldwork. There's, there's different options on the table, I think. And I don't think that we have also the ultimate answer, even especially since the university systems and the department structures vary so much. But I think in the end, we should carry this debate forward because the option cannot be to leave scholars that are working on contentious topics to choose either between self-imposed exile or moving their focus to a less contentious topics or a less contentious country context or, you know, leaving the discipline altogether in the end. But I also think it's important, as we say in the book, that we do actually recognize that there are some field works that should not be done because it's too dangerous. But at the same time, we are also 
saying that is there any field work that is risk-free completely? No, we can always end up having challenges and problems when we're conducting field work, any kind of field work. So it's this balancing act and finding the right way of dealing with it and to start a conversation with it like this that we're trying to do in the book is actually a first step to really start discuss this with colleagues in different research seminars, in workshops, and to bring it up also with university leaderships, but from the perspective of the researchers then, to really try to convince the different administrative bodies that it's really important that this is developed in in conversation with us who actually are the one who knows the fields the best and who knows the best possible way to support and strengthen the field work from a risk perspective yeah and i think actually what both of you are pointing out in a sense and what's the major thrust of the book right is that there's a process for thinking through what the risks are a process for thinking through how we secure data and how we deal with psychological issues and then having the institutions support that process right teaching how to do a risk assessment as opposed to saying it's too risky in tanzania right so that's it's really the support of the process from the beginning to the end that we could most benefit from and we also talk a lot more in the book than we have here about how often sometimes people sort of give advice because that's the way they've done it and it's not but it's also that, that things change right so if i give you advice on you know how to work in jordan but it's from my field work 10 years ago or five years ago that might not be apt for today so we we talk a lot about making sure that kind of advice and input is really coming from those who most know the cases and most know the cases now right not in the past yeah, I think that's exactly right. And for me, it actually boils down to informed assessment, basically, how to make an informed assessment. We've been talking about informed consent when it comes to research ethics. It's, it's broader than that. It's really about making an informed assessment on what is safe and what is not safe. And this information is based on different context factors, on, inter on different personal factors, on research topic-related factors, on research methods-related factors, etc. And it changes all the time. It's also related uh, to institutional setups, to your resources and so on. But yeah, in that sense, to make such an informed assessment on which of these factors matter to your specific situation, I think there the book goes really a long way in pointing out some of those. And I think that's really the added value to what we have there in the literature so far. Thank you. Any last words? Again, I think that this is, I mean, it's been a fantastic project to work on with you both, but it's also an important addition to how people can think through research safety, both in Corona times and non-Corona times and in the global North and the South, and really take a much more process-oriented perspective. Any final thoughts or words? Maybe one final thing to add. I just wanted to highlight that, of course, you mentioned it before as well, but this book was not just only the three of us or only the five authors written on the book cover that wrote the book. Actually, it was, I think, over 15 authors from different institutions, including practitioners and researchers and techies. And I think it was especially this interdisciplinary collaboration that provided these great results for the book. So I think this practice itself may be a way forward on how to think on these issues. Excellent points. Very grateful to their collaboration with both of you. And again, for also for your taking time to talk today. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm.